You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 538 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you live here on this Tuesday evening. If you listened to the podcast from yesterday, you would note that I wasn't 100% sure that a podcast would be coming between now and uh, when I come back from my uh, international travel this week, but I wanted to come back and provide a mailbag of sorts, a lot of good, lot of good questions, so thanks to all those who, uh, I guess, submitted one question that I could hit on, and uh, lots to come on today's podcast that will hopefully tide you over for the rest of the week until I return back after this trip. But the first thing, first things first here, uh, one bit of news that actually hit on Tuesday was that Chris Villamore of the AJC reported that the Hawks will be signing BJ Johnson, quote, later in the week, end quote. I'm not exactly sure when that's going to be taking place, um, but it looks, it looks to be uh, confirmed by Johnson, who uh, seemingly confirmed that on Twitter with a uh, quote tweet of sorts. So it looks like that's going to be happening in the, in the very near future. The timing as of this podcast on Tuesday night is going to be unknown, to me at least. Um, also, Jordan Seibert's 10-day contract expires later on this week. The Hawks, though, could wait if they wanted to to sign Johnson after Seibert um, expires, but they don't have to wait. They have they have a roster spot available. The Hawks have 14 um, current current players. They have to, they, they obviously have 15 potential roster spots, so they would have to replace Seibert if he expired after a, a certain amount of time. But bringing on Johnson sort of uh, prevents that from actually becoming an issue in the near future. I don't know a ton about Johnson. I will be candid about that at, at this point in time. But he is 23 years old. He was undrafted in 2018, so he's actually a true rookie, much like Jalen Adams, who was also undrafted in this class. Johnson went to LaSalle after actually he transferred there after being at Syracuse before that. He's been with the Lakeland Magic in the G League this season, actually shooting the ball quite well from three, which is probably what the Hawks are seeing in him. He's a legit 6'7 wing, um, shooting 43% from the from the three-point line this season. He seemingly appears to be a three and D type, which makes a lot of sense for the Hawks to take, take, take a look at that. That also goes to Travis Slink's type, because if you if you remember last year, the Hawks were cycling through players, and they were basically all wings. It was Damian Lee, it was Antonio's Cleveland, it was Jalen Morris, etc., and that is sort of going to be going to be the case here. It appears once again, and that's a strategy that I actually would fully endorse, to be honest with you. But again, admittedly, I haven't seen too much of him, but just a little bit of a pre-draft evaluation that I had of him in brief times um, before last year's draft. And Johnson is going to be looking to join the Hawks in the near future, so that's something to keep in mind as we move along here. So, with that out of the way, a couple of questions that I wanted to hit on here. We'll break it up a little bit in the middle. But um, first things first. First question comes from Dominic, and he asks. What would account for all the craziness with Torian Prince lineup? Torian Prince's lineup data this season. So I tweeted a little bit about this on Tuesday afternoon. It was actually kind of an accident. I originally went to tweet some other numbers and stumbled on these after looking at some lineup data. Uh, the first one that I tweeted out was this: that the Hawks' most frequently used five-man five man lineup this season is the starters, at least recently when they've all been healthy: Deadman, Collins, Prince, Herder. And Young, that group has been getting killed this season on the whole. A minus 14.2 net rating in 204 minutes. That's not good, obviously. Um, I I then pointed out that the second most frequently used five-man group is that same group, Deadman, Collins, Herter, and Young. 
but with Kent Bazemore instead of Torian Prince. And that group is actually plus 1.3. So they've outscored opponents in 145 minutes this season. It's not a huge sample size, but still, that's the second most frequently used group the entire season. So a reasonable enough sample. Um, also, beyond that, the three-man unit that I've been tracking all season long of Young, Herter, and Collins, the core group for the Hawks, is minus 3.0 overall in, three, in 720 minutes. That's a lot. That's actually a pretty big sample size. But if you were to add Torian Prince to that, so have the same three-man group of Young, Herter, and Collins, and then add Prince in, that team is then minus 11.0 in 247 minutes. So basically, uh, Young, Herter, and Collins have been great, except for, when they're, except for when they're paired with Prince, which is interesting to point out. And on the whole, for the season, Prince is minus 11.1. Um, when he's on the floor in over a thousand minutes, and the Hawks are minus 3.8 net rating when he is off the floor in over 1800 minutes. So, you know, sample size issues are worth pointing out. It's only one season of data, but it has to be said also that Prince is not the only negative player in terms of negative lineup data. For instance, the Hawks are about four points better per home possessions on the season when Trey Young is off the floor as well. That probably will change a little bit when Jer- now that Jeremy Lin is gone and Jalen Adams is the backup point guard. With that said, though, it isn't just Prince, and I have to point that out. With, with that said, again, though, most of the issues with Prince being on the floor are defensive. Prince has the worst individual individual defensive rating on the roster, aside from Adams, who's been a obviously a pretty small sample size there for him. Even worse than guys like Young and Collins and Herter and Spellman, who are defensive liabilities right now. Combine that with sort of middling offense with Prince. The offense has been okay-ish when he plays but not good enough to overcome what has been pretty bad defensively. And basically any any any, any kind of lineup that you could throw out there, the Hawks have really struggled with Prince on the floor defensively. So, again, I originally went to look at something else, but I sort of stumbled on this. I think that offensively it's important to note that Prince has a skill set to be very helpful. Glenn Willis of Peachtree Hoops, who writes for me over there, recently wrote about the fact that Prince has been really, really good when he's off the ball and acting in sort of in, in, in a supporting role that way as a spot-up guy and some other stuff, secondary offensive option. He's been very good with that. So if you want to point out, if you want to go, go out and then read that particular piece, it's definitely worth considering what Prince has been very good at offensively this season. With that said, defensively, though, it's kind of a mess. Um, he often stops the ball on offense as well, which which needs to be pointed out too, and that's the biggest flaw on that end of the floor. Um, some of the on-off stuff is because of the fact that he's being replaced by better defenders and Bazemore and Bembry, who are both pretty pretty darn good defensive players, but still, some of this is uh, also because of Prince's limitations, and his rebounding as well has been a big problem. The Hawks have been getting killed with he, with him on the floor in terms of team rebounding. Prince is, you know, small four, you don't necessarily point to rebounding all that much, but he's really bad, uh, at least when compared to his size at the position, and that also that sort of hurts the team in terms of being able to close possession. So, I was asked on Twitter also to highlight some of the numbers since uh, he came back from injury because, you know, Prince, I think by the eye test and, and by some uh, some natural reactions, he had a couple of good games. People are thinking that he's playing better basketball. The lineup data is still pretty tough because it's sort of a small sample size. He's not been back for that long, but in 19 games, he is minus 8.3 on the floor with uh, in 482 minutes. That's, that's pretty bad. And the Hawks are minus 0.9, so basically almost flat when he's off the court in 430 minutes. So not really much better, honestly. The the, the entire team is a little bit better overall, but still um, not too much of a favorable gap for Torian Prince. So 
but nothing to take away other than the fact that I, I'm, you know, same stuff that we've been talking about all season long with Prince and his, uh, him, him being not the greatest fit in the world on this particular roster. Still, um, he brings a lot of good things to the table. That's worth pointing out as well. He has great size for the position. He's been a 38% three-point shooter for two straight years now. He's definitely a good shooter, and that's very helpful. And defensively, he can dial, he can dial it up when he's on the ball, etc. But you know. Still, the numbers kind of are what they are, and it's kind of goes to the same eye test evaluation that we would have as well and looking at film and et cetera, et cetera. Prince has just been struggling, and that's worth pointing out here. So we will leave that question. Not every answer is going to be that long, but I wanted to go through a lot of that and talk about some of the stuff that was going on there. So next question, this is going to be when I fly through a little bit quicker, comes from Jamie, and he uh, he or she, I'm actually not 100% sure, so my apologies. Um, it feels like you and other people that cover the team talk about the Hawks being bad on defense after almost every game. Are the Hawks really that bad, or is it just something that I'm actually hearing over and over again? So with that said, uh, the Hawks have a 112.8 defensive rating for the year. The NBA has only been keeping that particular stat since 1996-97 season, so about 23 seasons of data. It would be the worst mark in the history of the franchise over that time period by a pretty wide margin and one of the 10 worst in the entire league over 23 seasons. So that tells you how bad the Hawks have been defensively. They've been getting probably get more coverage of that, honestly, if, if, it not, if, if not for the Cavs and the Suns this year. The Cavs are the worst defense in the history of the NBA right now, which is pretty jarring to say out loud, but not an exaggeration. And the Suns are also worse than the Hawks are this season. Some of that has to do with league-wide factors, and offense is better on the whole this year than it has been really in a long time. So it's fair to say the Hawks may not be quite as bad as the numbers are indicating defensively, but still, it's bad. There's no question about that. A lot of guys that they're playing are bad defenders, obviously, um, you know, the only guys that I would say in the rotation right now who are average or better defensively are Bazemore, Bembry, Deadman, and maybe Alex Lynn. That means the Hawks are playing six or seven guys every night that are below average defenders or worse. That's Young, Adams, Herter, Prince, Collins, Spellman, and Carter. And uh, that it, it sort of spells disaster in a lot of ways. I talked about it with, with Graham Chappell earlier in the week and just the fact that the Hawks don't really have a stopper defensively. They have, they have some pretty good defenders, but no no elite guys, and they have a lot of holes, and that kind of leads to them being so bad. So, yes, in, in short, Jamie, the answer is the Hawks are really bad defensively, and uh, it probably isn't being overstated, honestly. It's probably being understated at this point in time. Um, moving on from there, we can sort of get into a couple of other things here quickly. One comes from Bryce, who asks, how much should we, how much should Hawks fans worry about the Mavericks tanking to keep their pick? Luka Doncic just missed a couple of games, and Dallas has now lost five in a row. So as of Tuesday, when I'm recording this, the Mavs, the Mavs were projected by two systems to finish in a tie for eighth place in terms of lottery odds, so eighth worst record in the NBA with the Miami Heat in both of those metrics. That's that's 538 and ESPN's metrics both have them in the, in the mid-30s in terms of wins and a tie for eighth for pre-lottery stuff there. Um, as of Tuesday, though, the Hawks uh, the Hawks are still six and a half games, I guess, behind the Mavericks for um, positioning in the standings. That, that's individually. And the Mavs have a three-game lead on the Grizzlies for the number six, six overall spot. So it looks like Dallas, the most likely scenario is they finish somewhere in the 7-8-9 range in terms of where they will land um, pre-lottery. If they finished 7th with the 7th worst record in the league entering lottery night, they'd have a 31.9% chance to keep that pick. So if they land in the top 4 during the lottery, they get to keep that pick. The the top four spots are lottery driven, and after that, it sort of, it sort of falls in line. So you're, you're, it's basically does Dallas jump into the top four with ping pong balls? Uh, if if they if they were to enter the night seventh, it'd be about thirty two percent. If they were to enter the night sixth, it'd be about thirty seven percent. On the brighter side, if they finished eighth or ninth, it'd be twenty six percent if it was eighth, and twenty percent if it was ninth. So, you know, 
Odds are the Hawks are going to enter lottery night in a very good position to get that Mavs pick, but it's not the lock that you might think it is. Um, even if Dallas turns it on and wins some games and finishes 10th or 11th, they're going to have a puncher's chance of getting into the top four. So no Hawks fans will be able to breathe about that pick until after the lottery. It'll, they'll obviously have double concerns between the Hawks pick, the Hawks own pick, and hopefully where that lands, and then where the Mavs pick comes to fruition so you know again top five protected so if it lands anywhere outside the top five then the hawks will have it and you know big picture the hawks would love to have that pick be six seven eight somewhere in there but i think they would take it almost anywhere in the lottery so that's worth pointing out and obviously dallas is not going to be making the playoffs at this point in time so that is the safe part is that dallas is going to be conveying a pretty good pick if they convey it but there is also more risk and that's the downside of it is that they could certainly land in the top five by draft night so We'll have a close eye on Dallas down the stretch. I will probably um, tackle this kind of question again between now and the end of the season. But for now, the Hawks are in pretty good shape, but there's going to be some risk, somewhere between 20 and 35%, you know, generally, um, of a chance for Dallas to get into the top four on on draft lottery night and uh, a lot of uh, holding your breath between now and then. Um, with that said, we'll have qu- uh, one quick break here to talk about um, the Lot Time Podcast Network. I really appreciate everyone that's already gone, gone ahead and subscribed to this podcast, as well as Locked On uh, Falcons and other, and other particular shows that you might have interest in. There, we also have a, a, a ton of college stuff, NFL stuff, NBA stuff, national NBA, national NFL, fantasy basketball, fantasy football, all that fun stuff. So please hop on to the podcast network and uh, check it out. Download, subscribe, leave a five-star feedback if you like the podcast, et cetera, et cetera. And after this short break, we'll come back and answer more of your mailbag questions. Okay, and we're back to talk about some uh, NBA draft stuff here on uh, this particular segment of the Mailbag Pod. The first question comes from Davis, and uh, he asks, if the Hawks landed at number two in the draft, would you take R.J. Barrett or trade down from there? Uh, One thing that I will always say about this is that it's never as easy to make a trade up or down as fans want to always think that it is. I'm not saying that about Davis, but just in general, um, it's tough to make trades, and that's something that I know the Hawks pull one off last year. Even then, it didn't happen until very late in the process. It took a very specific team partner and a package for, for Schlenk to be willing to do it. So it's not always easy. The trade discussions are clear in some ways. Uh, you know, even with even with Coles Wicker and I last week talking about trades, you know, in a vacuum, stuff can make sense, but it's never as easy as even I think it might be. So with that said, um, and with that out of the way here, I will say, you know, in a vacuum answer to the question, I'd be trying to move out. That's just me. I can be talked into Barrett working in Atlanta, but you kind of need to believe that he's willing to take a little bit of a different role and a different mindset than he's had at Duke. I have some concerns about his about his overall ceiling with how he wants to play, honestly. And he's he's, he's a very competitive kid from by all, by all accounts. He's, he's won everywhere. I'm not sure he's, quote, the guy, end quote, on a good team. And I don't. I definitely think. I, don't, I definitely think that he seems to think that he is, and he operates that way, which is a good thing. You kind of want a guy who has the swagger and the killer instinct, etc. But I'm not sure he's good enough to operate that way in the NBA. We'll see how that works in the future. Uh, I do have. I do have Barrett at number two on my board, sort of begrudgingly. It's a one-player tier for me at the top with Zion Williamson. So if the Hawks couldn't get out, uh, couldn't trade out, couldn't get any value out of that p- pick or trade, I would. I guess you just have to take Barrett. That's kind of where I would be because obviously John Morant would be the biggest contender for that, and the Hawks just can't take him that high. So or really anywhere in the top ten because of the way that Trey Young is would operate and the fact those guys play the same position. So R.J. Barrett is not a great pick at number two in my opinion. The value is not great there in this class. Um, with that said, I think you just have to take him, and I reserve the right to change my mind between now and June, of course. But I think the value play overall would be to try to trade back at number two or number three somewhere in that range, just because. 
You have to hope a team falls in love with either Barrett or Morant or somebody else along the way, get some value, trade back. I'd, I'd be more comfortable with someone like Cam Reddish or Jarrett Culver later in the top five than I would be with taking Barrett at two, especially when you, when you get another asset as well. So it's too early for specifics, obviously, but just, just, just to address that, I do think that at number two is, you know, number two is not, not the place that I want to be in this draft, honestly. So if you're the Hawks, you want to definitely try to move back if you're able to do that and get some value. Next question comes from Andrew, uh, who asks, what do you think of Jarrett Culver? Would you rather have him or Cam Reddish for the Hawks? I'm a big fan of Jarrett Culver. I will say that. I wrote about him a little bit earlier in the season for Dime Mag, and uh, he's one of my favorite prospects in his class. There's been some buzz about him growing a little bit to like 6'7", 6'8". That would help his stock a lot because before the season he was listed at 6'5". That would hurt him a little bit. I think you know he's a shot maker. He plays the game with really good feel. His basketball IQ is very high. I'm not really that concerned about it, but there, he's not a he's not a nuclear athlete. That's something you have to point out. He's not a hugely effective and explosive athlete, which is why the size would be kind of a big thing for him. But I think I think he can sort of defend his position. He'll be a two way player. He isn't going to be a dominant defender, I don't think. But um, with the way he plays offensively, you don't have to have him be dominant defensively. I'm not sure Culver's like going to be a superstar or anything, but I do think there's a lot of uh, quality in his game uh, on both ends of the floor. I do have Reddish one spot ahead of Culver to answer that second question about um, him or him versus Cam Reddish. With that said, I'm not sure that the gap is very large there. I think Reddish uh, defensively has just a lot more upside than Culver does on that end of the floor because of his length and his uh, switchability, all that fun stuff. I think Zion is in, in, in his own tier, but I, and I think these guys are, are in this sort of a similar tier with um, RJ Barrett. Uh, just because I'm not sure Barrett separated himself. So, you know, w- within the same tier, you kind of want to be pick- picking near the end of it because the value is usually better there. And I kind of, with that's uh, kind of the mindset that I would have right now. But I, I think they can't take Morant. So between, if, if it was me, if I'm, if I'm making a Hawk-centric big board, my top four would be Zion by himself and then uh, Barrett number two, and then probably uh, I would go Reddish and then Culver at three and four right now. This is just for the Hawks. So obviously I have the right to reserve and sort of change my mind a little bit, but that's kind of where I am at this particular moment, and I do like Reddish and Culver quite a bit. Um, Next on the agenda is a question from Jay Parker, who asks, "Is, is DeAndre Hunter the most Brad Roland pick in this draft, or is it Jarrett Culver the most Hawksy pick? Um, I was joking with Tyler Jones, good friend of the program on Twitter earlier this week, about the fact that Hunter is the oldest guy in the top 10, and uh, <laughs> Tyler rightly made fun of me about the fact that I tend to like older prospects a little bit more than some. I will say, most of the time, my affinity for older prospects is uh, guys later in the first round who I think get overlooked because of their relatively low ceilings. Like, for instance, recently, like a Monty Morris type is one that I think was overlooked in the draft. I said that two years ago. I was a huge fan of Monty Morris, etc. It doesn't always work. That's something that I have to say. It could be flawed as well. Like I like Jacob Evans in this class a little bit last year. It's not, that's not going very well. But um, even in the class that the Hawks drafted Torian Prince and DeAndre Bembry, I like those guys. They've worked out pretty well, honestly. That, that's a pretty bad draft. But I was a huge fan of both of those guys in the draft. And uh, in terms of their of their positions in the draft, they've been successful picks versus uh, some guys that are in the same range. So I think oftentimes age does matter. You know, last year I was preaching a lot that Jaron Jackson versus Mo Bamba was, uh, you know, there were reasons beyond age, but Jackson was like a year and a half, two years younger than Mamba. That was a huge deal. Hunter is an older prospect. He's 21 years old already. And as a result of that, you have to keep that in mind. That's a big thing. 
Um, I will say, though, the skepticism about him and his upside in the NBA is warranted because he is older. I'm not sure he's going to be ever like elite at anything other than maybe being a switch defender, but I like him a lot. I do think that he's more of a guy that you would want in that 6-10 to 10 range. Uh, you know, I don't think he's a top 5 pick in this class, even if I like him quite a bit, and I do. So I, I, if you're the Hawks and, and you have two picks, it's easier to take Hunter with that second one, or you could argue that maybe you want some more upside. I totally get that too. So I can see both sides of it. I do think that he's a top 10 overall player in this class. I understand arguments pro, pro or con with Hunter, but I do like him probably more than most do. I still think that um, I have guys like Reddish and Culver ahead of him, but I think the interesting debate, honestly, maybe in the entire top 10, um, head-to-head, would be Hunter against Nas Little. Um, Hunter has been a much better college player, obviously, but he's a lot older. Nas Little is a lot more upside, a better athlete, etc. So that would be an interesting debate to have back and forth uh, between now and June. Uh, I do have Hunter, though, ahead of Kelton Johnson and Romeo Langford for sure, and that's kind of just maybe personal preference, but I do like Hunter more than those guys. So... At the very least, I would have Hunter somewhere in the six, seven, eight range if I am the Hawks. So if the Hawks end up picking, you know, three and nine or four and nine or something like that, uh, if he's still there at nine, then he'd be a pretty good value in my opinion. Uh, moving away from the draft a little bit here, uh, a couple more questions to hit on. Then I promise I'll get you get you guys out of here on this fine Tuesday evening. Um, this is going to center on a, sort of a sil- similar theme for these last two, so bear with me a little bit. But it comes. The first question comes from Tom Loggins at Tom Loggins on Twitter. Why is the rookie Why is the rookie of the year race already set in stone? According to most people in the media, do they not pay attention to Trey Young and the Hawks? P.S. I love the podcast. Uh, thank you for the kind words, by the way. Um, but first of all, I will say I feel reasonably smart in saying that before the season that I thought Trey was the best value betting wise on the board. He was like ten to one, twelve to one. That always felt too high to me. I did not pick him to win, but I thought that I thought, and I tweeted and said on this podcast multiple times, I thought he was the best value. That seems to be true, honestly. It's gone according to plan in that way because I thought that Young was going to have every opportunity to shine offensively. He's had that opportunity. He's played well with it. He had the one down month in, eight, in November, but other than that, he's been very, very good. The problem, though, with Trey's candidacy for Rookie of the Year is that Doncic has been so good and... Um, being what he's been, and it kind of puts him puts everybody else in a tough spot because he's got a lot of media coverage, rightly so. He's been awesome, and uh, he's sort of taken all the oxygen out of the room for the most part. So looking at the numbers a little bit, right now Doncic is averaging 21 points, 7 rebounds, 6 assists, 3 turnovers per game on 43% from the floor and 35% from 3 for the season. Young is averaging 17.5 points, 7.7 assists, 3.3 rebounds, 3.9 turnovers, 41% from the floor, and 33% from three. So Doncic has the edge in every single counting stat, aside from assists, which Young is the best passer in the class, even even ahead of Doncic for me. And I think, though, it's important to note that Doncic also has a massive edge in all of the like advanced metrics, whether it be win shares or box plus minus or VORP, PER, RPM, PIPM, all those. Um, Doncic has a pretty, pretty big edge. So... I do think it's important to point out that Doncic is a pretty bad defender right now as well. I think he's still better than Young, but not by that much because Doncic is bad in his own right. That's something that needs to be said. But Young can't really make up the difference there on defense because he is not good, obviously. So the narrative also is heavily in Doncic's favor. For better or worse, that does matter. It doesn't mean it probably should matter, but it it, it does in terms of actually predicting who's going to win the award. I do think... If Young had a ridiculous run down the stretch, you know, starting with the way that he played on Monday night in Houston, and Doncic either got in, uh, got hurt or went into the tank a little bit, the gap could close. I think the perception gap, though, is pretty large and almost probably wider than the actual gap on the floor has been. 
the last 35 games or so, Trey's been great, 19 points, 8 assists per game, with 44 with 44% from the floor and 39% from three. But that same time frame from Doncic, he's been better than he's been all year long as well, with 23 points, 8 rebounds, and 7 assists per game. Um, doesn't really uh, you know, it's, t- it's tough to beat that in terms of just counting stats and all that fun stuff. I think Young might finish second. I think he's in a race with DeAndre Ayton for second right now. I think I would I would vote Young second. Uh, Ayton Ayton has pretty good numbers as well, and he's uh, was the number one pick in the draft, which some people will just defer, sort of default to. I think I'd probably go with Young second, but still, it'd be pretty stunning to me if Doncic didn't win Rookie of the Year. I think a lot of the betting markets took him off the board for that reason. Um, he's a huge favorite still. I understand wanting to get, take a flyer on Young this late if you got huge odds on that because it's not impossible. But I think it's pretty unlikely that Young, Young would actually catch him and end up winning. Um, I think Young would probably have to average like, I don't know, 28 and 10 down the stretch, which isn't like completely impossible with the way the Hawks are playing and the way that he has free reign. But he's going to have some rough nights. It's just one of those things that happens. Even when he has a couple of great ones like he did on Monday, he's usually prone to cooling off a little bit after that. So I think, you know, big picture. I have to be frank and say that it, it does not seem possible to me. Sorry, it does not, does not seem probable or not all that possible. It's not impossible, which is something I need to point out, but I think Luke is going to win Rookie of the Year um, 99 of 100, probably, 95 out of 100 minimum. So we'll see if Trey can pull, pull Rev out of his hat here, but I, I don't think it's all that close right now. And outside of Atlanta, I'm not sure anybody's necessarily pointing out the fact that Trey really has a big-time chance to go ahead and win the award. Last question that I will get to is also Trey Young related, and it comes from Coach Smith on Twitter. Um, he says, Every bad team has a leading score. Is Trey Young the guy, or is he just a good piece on a team? Um, that's one of the biggest questions of the rebuild, honestly. So thanks for asking it. That's one that I have as well, one that a lot of people have, and uh, always something that people want to talk about about rookies because it's like, you know, what, what is this guy now? What is this guy big picture? I um, recently had Cole Zwicker on the podcast, and he's long thought that Young had the potential to be a top 10 offensive player in the league if he if he fulfills that potential. I generally agree with that. I think Trey's upside is off the charts offensively. He is a fantastic offensive prospect. He, he has to make shots at a high level to unlock it all, But uh, and honestly, that's the big swing. He shot the ball better recently, and you kind of see how the floor opens up for him in that way. If he's only a good shooter, like a pretty good shooter but not, not a great one, like I think he probably already is, um, his ceiling isn't quite as high. If he's a great shooter, then his ceiling is even higher, as you would imagine. But even then, his passing is awesome already. If you combine that with his ability to shoot off movement, and is it what I think is probably going to be an improving ability to finish around the rim, you have a pretty pretty fantastic offensive prospect. I wouldn't go as far as to say that I definitely think that Young is the guy, um, in all capital letters necessarily, but he has the capability of being that guy on offense. My issues were always about more about defense and his consistency and his size, all, all that fun stuff. I think... Though, just to say it again, I think it's very possible that, that Trey Young is the guy on, on offense. I don't know that just yet, but it's definitely in the role and possibility, or maybe even likely, considering what he's shown in his rookie season offensively. I've said this a lot. Uh, I think that Young has exceeded any rational expectation for him during his, during his first NBA season. He had the bad stretch in November, but aside from that, he's been really darn good <laughs> offensively. Uh, he was genuinely bad during that stretch, but still, offensively, you can't really argue that he's been anything but really good um, for, a rook, for a rookie. Defensively, the problems, the problems are what they are. I've talked about them a lot, so I don't want to be later them here. They do matter. But for me, in terms of just building, building this roster, his offense matters more than his defense. We kind of know what the limitations are there. But, um, you know, long story short, 
He certainly could be the guy offensively. I will not proclaim that he is the guy, the number one option for sure. It would always help to have a number, a number two option or like a 1A, 1B situation if you got another high-end high end option. But Trey does have the ability to be a number one option, and that's the biggest thing on a rebuild is just trying to find that number one option offensively. He might be that, and that's a great piece to have moving forward. So. Hopefully that answers all the questions. I have uh, quite a few more that I've sort of banked away. So thanks to everyone that's asked the question on this fine day. But I uh, I didn't want to talk forever and ever and ever uh, on a solo podcast. So uh, hopefully hopefully we all navigate this one together. Please keep the questions coming. I will always take more and I will use them in the future. So thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for, t- thanks for participating in the show today. All that fun stuff. One more note here. There will not be a show probably until I get back to town. Um, basically, depending on travel and logistics, it could be either Sunday or Monday. That's a, I know it's sort of a longer gap than I, than I would like, so my apologies on that. But this is sort of a, only once or twice a year do I have to take a little bit of a break for work purposes. And uh, please forgive that absence. If something were to go haywire, haywire I'm sure I could probably put something together. I will not have a friend in the conference of my studio, of my studio or uh, reliable internet, all that fun stuff. So please um, be patient with me, but I'll be back again early next week to talk about everything that's transpired between now and then. Please subscribe. Please leave a positive feedback. If you like the positive, if you like, if you like the, po- uh, the podcast, that'd be huge for me and the entire network. Check out the entire network as well. And we will see you guys early next week.